1859, revival spread throughout Northern Ireland. It never happened before in Northern Ireland. Things began to change. The fabric of society was completely unraveled and re-knit back together. And for the first time, Northern Ireland began to experience what scholars and historians and church historians would say, that the kingdom of God broke into the reality of the here and now in Northern Ireland. And as the kingdom of God began to expand, as it began to transform society, lives, and the whole nation, a group of historians sat down, asked the question, what just happened? And as they began to ask the question, what just happened, they actually began to interview people, people who were now part of the church, who were now empowered by the Holy Spirit, who now believed in the resurrection of Jesus, who were now part of the church at work in Northern Ireland, and they were interviewing people who had never been part of the church before, and they came to a group of women who formerly were prostitutes. And they asked them, what happened? Like, how are you involved in this community that you had never been part of before? How are you now empowered by the Spirit and, and being ambassadors for Christ? How, how are you on the, the bleeding edge, the front edge of leading this movement? And these women said, well, two things happened at the same time. In 1859, the first was this. Business tanked. All of a sudden... A lot more time on their hands, a lot less money. The second thing was this. They said for the first time in our lives, as we walked the streets, people looked at us with dignity, with respect, with kindness. And so while business was tanking and people were kind to us, we got captivated by the reason why. And the historians pressed in. They, they asked more questions. They said, you've you got to understand, these women said, that in Northern Ireland there was two different types of people. There was the irreligious, the amoral, and there was the religious, the morally upright. And these women said, we used to be exploited by both. The irreligious, the amoral, exploited our bodies. The religious, the moral, they exploited our hearts. They treated us like animals. They condemned us. They shunned us. And the kingdom of God coursed through Northern Ireland in such a profound way that it converted the irreligious and the religious to get swept up into this movement of God, changing forever lives and a nation. In the same way, the question was asked, what happened then? In 68 AD, the physician Luke, after Caesar Nero had just burned Rome, had just blamed the Christians, before Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, before the temple was destroyed, something had just happened in the last 30 years where lives were transformed, where what seemed to be this kingdom of God spreading throughout neighborhoods, throughout businesses, throughout political parties, it was spreading through the down and out and the up and in in such a profound way that, that Luke stopped and he looked back and he said, what just happened? That's what we're going to discover. Over the next six to nine months, I don't know how long we're going to do this, 
But today we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And I've got to tell you, this is not a book that was written to start a movement. It was a book that was written to describe a movement that had already happened. Thirty years after these transforming events of Jesus Christ, they said, what just happened? And I've got to tell you, I've written a lot of sermon series in my life. I've got, you know, on my laptop, a little folder. It says sermons. And in that folder that says sermons, I've got seems to be a hundred sermon series that I've written since 2002 as a, as a youth pastor, as a camp speaker, you know, sermons that I preached in the slums of Uganda and the jungles of Costa Rica, uh, that I've preached in prisons, that I've preached the last five years here as a senior pastor uh, at, at Bel Air Church. And I'm not supposed to say this before I start a sermon series, but I can't put into words uh, the fullness of this, but I feel like this is going to be the most significant sermon series that I've ever preached in my life. And I'm not supposed to say that, like, before I go into it, right? But I have to say it. I don't know what it is. There's something that God is calling us to as a church right here, right now, 63 years in. I believe that God is saying, I want to do a new thing in such a profound way that you're going to look back and say, what just happened? In the same way in 1859 in Northern Ireland, in the same way... We see it coursing through China, throughout India, through every region of the planet. You see, this is not a religious movement. This is a movement of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to discover our origin story of who we are as a church, who God longs for us to be as humans, we have an opportunity to be swept up in this great and glorious thing that God wants to do. And it's fascinating because... I think in the last six months to a year, I've been talking to senior pastors throughout Los Angeles, worship leaders throughout Los Angeles, people who I believe have the gift of, of prophecy, who are our prayer warriors in this church and around the city, and there's this commonality that people are saying, we believe that God is about to do something so significant that's going to start here in Los Angeles. And the word revival is being used in ways that I've never heard in the last 20 years. And we have an opportunity to either be part of that or not. And you are forever welcome here. But the things that we are going to discover in this sermon series are an opportunity for you to decide, do you want to be a part of what God wants to do now in you and through you in this church, in this city, throughout the nation, around the globe? So if you have your books, why don't we open them up to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a book that you brought with you, no problem, that red book in the pew in front of you. This is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, some of you access Scripture online. We're reading out the New Revised Standard Version. And many join us each week online as well or after the fact. Welcome today as we are getting started on this sermon series with the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I'd love to do this if you would, if you're able. Would you stand right now in this moment? I'd love for us to read this together if you're online. You can stand too if you're on a plane. Some of you are on a sports field watching your kids right now. You're already standing. If you can't stand, it's not about standing. It's a, it's a posture of our heart. It's ready. It's anticipating what God wants to do in and through us. We're going to read in a moment out loud Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Afterwards, I'm going to say, this is the reading of God's word. And wherever you are, why don't you just say, thanks be to God. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. Glad you're here. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's begin. 
In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. God. Amen. As you grab a seat, and some of you are taking notes on paper, on pen. Some of you have great memory. First, three things I want to uncover as we launch into the sermon series. It might be six months. It might be nine months. We don't know. We'll follow the Spirit's leading, but we've got three verses today. Uh, when Paul uh, and Luke and many early leaders of the church are looking back, saying, what just happened? I believe they look back. And they said, this is what changed everything. The three things were this. It was the resurrection, first and foremost. Two, it was the Holy Spirit. Three, it was the church at work. You see, it was the resurrection that was the most dramatic diverter of human history. There was this fast-paced flow of human history where evil triumphed over good, where death always had the last word, that there was suffering, that there was pain, there was hopelessness. And this actual event changed, like changing a, a, a fast-flowing river. It, it diverted the course of human history for the first time. For the first time, death did not have the last word. Mercy triumphed over sacrifice. Uh, God's finished work became the basis for our belovedness, and the kingdom of God was here and was now. You see, Luke, when he begins this, this historical account, he begins so in a way that actually gives us a clue to the type of writing this is. You see, if you, if you read a lot of uh, first century history, like I do, and some of you maybe do, uh, you might read people like Josephus. Anybody heard of Josephus? Great reading late at night if you want to fall asleep. Um, or just to understand the world of the first century. It's fascinating. But, uh, you know, when Josephus starts his historical accounts of what happened in the first century, uh, he has a particular phrase that he uses. He says, to my most excellent Epaphroditus, which is different than starting something with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which is different than it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Different than once upon a time. You see, the opening lines tell us that this is a historical account of something that was coursing throughout all of society that was spreading through people, through the down and out, through the up and in, that was transforming businesses and lives and art and giving people hope. For the first time, people were brought in and beloved. And you've got to understand that in the first century, there was no, there was no worldview, whether Roman or Jewish, that had space for a bodily resurrection of an individual person. You know, you might look back, you might say, oh, first century, you know, they were, you know, they weren't sophisticated like us. They were, they were you know, it was, it was first century. I mean, how much did they know, you might say? They believed everything. 
No, if you understand the first century, the Romans believed that the physical body was, was impure, was dirty, and it was the spirit, and it was our virtues that lasted in the heaven. And so they had no space in their mind for the bodily resurrection. That would have been crazy to them. The Jewish worldview had this belief that at some end of history time that, that the Jewish people would be generally, collectively raised from the dead. They didn't have anywhere in their mindscape one person being raised from the dead in the middle of history. And yet, Luke the physician starts off. Take a look. Verse 1 in the first book, Theophilus. I wrote about all the things that Jesus did and taught from the beginning. Right from the get-go, we see that this is different than any other religion, different than any other worldview. Luke is saying, I'm here to tell you not only about what Jesus taught, but also about what he did. You see, Christianity is not about what you do for God. That's part of it. But it begins with what God has already done and what we get to do in response to what God has already done, the finished work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. And Luke begins to go on. He says this. Take a look in verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, let's pause right there, you've got to understand that a huge part of the gospel, the good news, our origin story as the church is this very true reality that Jesus was crucified on the cross. That he died not as a victim, but he went by choice, obedient to God's will for his life. And I don't have time to unpack it today, but we will unpack it over the course of this sermon series in the book of Acts. But it was Jesus' suffering that began to completely change the course of human history. Because for the first time, the God of the cosmos entered into the broken reality that you and I experience so that when we lose a loved one, when our body is racked with cancer, when we lose a job, when our life savings are gone, when we experience more than just discomfort, when we begin to suffer, we can actually know in that moment that we have a God that doesn't say, pick yourselves up by the bootstraps, but we have a God that says, I am in that suffering with you. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, the prophet Isaiah says this, that he bore our grief, he bore our iniquities, Christ literally on the cross shouldered and experienced all the suffering that all of humanity would ever experience, including yours and mine. We have a God that can relate to us, who enters into that suffering. And the fascinating thing is that there was a lot of other Messiah movements in the first century. There was a lot of other people who were actually crucified who were taken off the cross, leaving an empty cross, and then who were buried. But the problem was is that there was a lot of empty crosses and a lot of full tombs. But for the first time in human history, there was an empty cross and an empty tomb. You see, Luke is saying right here something that does not fit into a Roman worldview. He's saying something that does not fit into a Jewish worldview. It doesn't fit into a modern American Western 2019 worldview that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave. And if you have a hard time grasping that truth, you're not alone. 
There's nobody in the history of humanity who would say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. So don't be surprised if there are people in your life that struggle with the historical reality of an empty cross and an empty tomb and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Don't be surprised if you struggle with it. But I've got to tell you that God will only do the miraculous in your life when you submit to the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no movement that can ever occur in your life, throughout your neighborhood, throughout the city, throughout the world, that begins with a denial of what Jesus has already done. And so Luke is writing to this guy, Theophilus, and he's saying, in my first volume, Gospel according to Luke, I began to write to you all that Jesus began to to teach and to do, and he suffered, and he appeared alive, and he appeared for 40 days, giving many convincing proofs to people. I, I have no idea where you collectively are at as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're always welcome here. You're always going to be loved here. But I've got to tell you, until you, and for some of us, step out in faith, and accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God will not move in and through you as powerfully as God can and wants to do. You see, the reason why there's not revival everywhere is because many people put up their gardens and say, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I like the teachings of Jesus, I like the principles, it's kind of a metaphor for how we can live. Whenever we do that, we stifle what God wants to do and God moves on to another community. I don't want the movement of God to move on somewhere else, from my life or our life. And so I've got all these questions. Do you? Right? We've got to be a community that can ask questions, that can struggle with this, that can have safe places where we say, really, the resurrection? Let's talk about this. But at the end of the day, to say, God, I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. Because the question isn't, do you like the teachings of Jesus or not? The real question is, is do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus or not? And it was the resurrection of Jesus that dramatically diverted the course of human history so much that Luke would say, that's what started it all. That's what, it was the finished work of Jesus Christ, but that was just the beginning. You see, Luke said what he began to teach and do. He didn't say what Jesus taught and did, past tense. You see, every great leader that has died has done all that they're ever going to do. And we can learn from them, but Jesus defeated death, rose from the graves at the right hand of the Father, and is continuing to do things in this world. And so the whole of the book of Acts isn't the Acts of the Apostles, just a group of people who took the teachings of Jesus and stepped out and started a movement that that we get caught up in today. No, it was Jesus continuing to do the work through his church, through his people, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it wasn't just the resurrection, it was the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this all throughout the book of Acts. It is the Holy Spirit that is the greatest transformer of human lives. I want to show you something again. If you would open those Bibles back up, Acts chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus has risen from the grave. At this point, it is before 
the festival Pentecost, which we'll learn about in a few weeks, where Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit to indwell people who are his followers in courage and in truth, indwells us today as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. This is before that happened, and yet Luke is saying that when Jesus taught his disciples, he taught them through the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to skip over this and move right on, but you've got to understand that whenever the teachings of Jesus are present, the Holy Spirit is present. And on one hand, that is terrifying for me as a preacher. I've got to put that out there, that when I get up here, I, I, I can't wing it. You know, I can't just phone it in. I can't just kind of like do a, a song and dance and make you laugh. Like this is, this is the teaching of Jesus, and I am actually held, actually all teachers are held at a higher level of accountability because what I speak is in a sense being reviewed by the Spirit of God. And so, you know, I come into this terrified, humble, praying, God, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And yet at the same time, I come to this moment with confidence. You know why? Because I believe that as I submit my life to God's word, that even if I mess it up, even if I get distracted, even if I talk too much about one thing or myself or the USC Trojans that absolutely killed her last night, that <laughs> the Holy Spirit is present. And I'm telling you, there's been times where I've preached a sermon, I've gone out in that narthex, and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking... That was awful. That was so bad. What did I, I just didn't even. And yet people will come up in line and greet me and say, Drew, I feel like that, that sermon was for me. And I know, I didn't write it for them. I know it sure wasn't good. But here's what I do know. That somehow the Holy Spirit used that moment and the truth of God's word, the teachings of Jesus, to meet somebody right where they are. And so I step in this moment that no matter how imperfect I am, how much I want to be an empty vessel that Jesus would teach through me, I know that it's the Holy Spirit that Jesus' teachings are not going to return void. That the Holy Spirit is going to do something in you and in me as I listen to this preaching that we can never do as humans. And you're going to hear the unfolding story of the early church, and you're going to marvel, as I'm going to marvel, at what the Holy Spirit does. Stephen goes to be stoned. As he's being stoned, after being courageous, it says that filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven. As he's being judged by a human court, he looks up at a heavenly court and knows that he's accepted and beloved in Christ. And it literally says in Scripture that he had the face of an angel. I want that kind of courage to move through this world with the face of an angel, because it's the Holy Spirit that has given me courage, given me hope, given me humility, stepping out regardless of what the world says, that I'd be obedient to Christ. You're going to hear stories of miracles at the level of the miracles that Jesus did, but now done by the disciples, by the early Christians, by the church. You're going to marvel at people like Saul, who approved of the killing of Christians, who is this legalistic, arrogant man who was so humbled by an experience with the risen Lord that he became one of the greatest leaders of the early church who said that I am the least of all the apostles. You're going to see the Spirit of God moving in such profound ways 
that disciples go singing to their death, that are joyous in jail, that this movement moves throughout the most marginalized of society, that for the first time the wealthy actually are pouring their wealth into God's kingdom, that the poor, even in their need, have joy and security, that there's a community unlike anything else, that there's this sense of a people being knit together, not in commonality of their socioeconomic status or their age or their worship preferences or, or their ethnicity or their political leanings, but it's the Holy Spirit that unites them together. And it's the Holy Spirit that is going to move and transform us as individuals in the church today if we allow it. So in the same way that I said, you're welcome here, you are, you're beloved here, but unless you embrace the truth of the resurrection, you're going to miss out on what God wants to do in and through you. In the same way, the Holy Spirit wants to dwell in you. The Holy Spirit wants to give you hope and courage. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal truth to you in Scripture. The Holy Spirit wants to give you gifts. The Holy Spirit wants you to step into miraculous things. And for many of us, perhaps we grew up in church, we heard about God the Father and God the Son, but we didn't hear much about God the Spirit. And there's never been a movement of God throughout human history where the Spirit of God wasn't dramatically present. And I so want to be a part of that here and now. We're beginning to witness things that we look back and say, what just happened? I mean, kids getting healed. I got a, an email last night of, of, of somebody in our church family who went to visit her mom in, in Taiwan and, and she should be dead, her mom. And there's this miraculous thing that's unfolding right now. I've seen marriages made whole. I've seen lives turned around. I've seen tremendous things. And it seems like it's just bubbling up. And I wonder, is God saying, get ready, church? My spirit, my, I mean, look, even for people to say, yes, 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 you know. The third is this. It's the church at work that unleashes the kingdom of God. You see, this wasn't the church that just sits back and watches. It's not the church that is an hour on Sunday. It's not the church that is a building. The church is a group of people empowered by the Spirit, defined by the reality of Jesus. And when the church rolls up its sleeve in prayer, when the church rolls up its sleeve and, and loves our neighbors ourselves, when the church gets to work at doing the kingdom work of God, the experience of the kingdom of God is here and now. I love this. N.T. Wright said that uh, on Easter morning, the hope that is a person came from the future into the present. N.T. Wright went on to say that, that what began to be inaugurated wasn't that God would just remove his people to a heaven at some future place, but rather heaven came here now. There's this amazing truth that the early church began to experience kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the Lord's Prayer. They began to experience it. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is wherever the reign of rule of Jesus is experienced. The kingdom of God is wherever the truth of God and the power of God intersect. And that happened in the early church. And I believe God wants that to happen right now, here and now, in Los Angeles and through this and many other churches here in the city. 
I, I love this quote, N.T. Wright. You're going to hear a lot from him as we wrap up. He says this, The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life our bodies right now, they're not just useless, they're not just valueless. But what you do with your body now matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting or preaching or singing or sewing or praying or teaching or building hospitals or digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poetry, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it all together. No, rather, they're all part of what we may call building for the kingdom of God. He goes on. N.T. Wright says, Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, Spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce with our lips and our lives redemption to a world that knows it's fallen, healing to a world that knows it's broken, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. You see, the gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of culture, articulating in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology and banking and acting and directing Christ in us, the hope of glory. I believe if we face the question if not now, then when? And if we are grasped by the vision that we also hear the question, if not us, then who? And if the gospel of Jesus is not the key to this task, then what is? Albert Schweitzer, a theologian, says, there can be no kingdom of God in the world without the kingdom of God in our hearts. You want to be part of the kingdom of God? breaking in to your neighborhood, your workplaces, this city, it has to break into our hearts first. I've got to ask, and you've got to ask with me, who is the king of my desires? Who or what is leading my thoughts, my spending, my energy? I said last week, we look to where we go. You see, the more you look at something with awe and reverence, the more you will be shaped by it. And if we've been shaped to be people of worry, of fear, of doubt, of discouragement, of bitterness, of anger, we're looking at the wrong thing. And I've got to confess all the ways to God with boldness, because Christ has already completed the finished saving work on the cross, I've got to confess to Jesus the ways in which I've put other things on the throne of my life and my heart. And so my prayer for you isn't just that you would embrace the gospel of the truth of the resurrection, isn't just that you would long for the Holy Spirit to course through and shape your life, but that you would pray that the kingdom of God would come here in our hearts 
as it is in heaven. Leo Tolstoy said there is nothing more important in life than pursuing the kingdom of God. Bill Johnson, a pastor at Bethel Church, says the kingdom of God must never be reduced to talk, ideas, and principles. The kingdom of God is power. You see, the kingdom of God isn't how you get power or earn power. Paul says in Romans 1.6 that it is the power of salvation to all who would believe. I have no idea what God's going to do. Do you think the early church, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and they were sitting there waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out, would they have any idea the miracles that were about to occur through them? Were they going to have any idea that actually they would be put to their death and yet they were filled with so much joy? Would they ever know that for the first time in human history that that the most broken, marginalized people of society had a place and a family to call home? Did they have any idea that in hundreds of years the whole of the Roman Empire was turned upside down? Would they have any idea that this huge movement would spread to the ends of the earth and it coursed through not only China and India and North Ireland, but it, it came to Los Angeles? birthed this church and many other churches? Did they have any idea that this continuity of what Christ was going to do in and through them would lead to us today to be invited, to be part of what God wants to do again here right now? No, they had no idea. But God did. Outside of time, sees all of it and says, I want to revive and renew and inbreak my kingdom living here with my people out of love, and I'm going to use people to do it. He said that to them back then, he's saying it to us right now. And we get to choose right now in this moment to be part of that. And what I'm excited about isn't that we would just all of a sudden start withdrawing from life and volunteering here in this community. No, 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 I'm talking about that we would see how we lead through a lens of being a citizen of heaven. That we would see our banking as an opportunity to flesh out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we would be directors and actors and baristas and some of us billionaires in a way that is through the filter of what it means to be a beloved child of God. That we would get to work as the church at work and it would spread into our lives and our workplaces and our neighborhoods throughout the city to the ends of the globe. I'm so pumped. I'm so pumped. You know why I'm pumped? Because I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea. Five years, I've had people say, Drew, just tell us where we're going to go. Give us the game plan. Perfectly tell us what the Envision future is going to look like. You tell us what it's going to look like, what time. We'll get there. We'll follow. That's terrifying. Because what if you describe it wrong? We'll move on to the next person. And I wonder if one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this sermon series is because I don't have the answer. But Christ does. 
And he's going to speak that answer through us as a community. And my task is to listen to what Christ is going to speak through us as a community and simply tell it back to you. And we as leaders, as pastors, as preachers, as elders, as deacons, we want to be listening for what God is doing in our midst, and we want to get aboard, and we want to follow and say, all right, God, lead us. So five years in, I'm here to tell you what I told you the first week. Christ is the head of this church. Not me. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to give us power. And it's not our 63-year history that we say because of that, now we have the prestige to go out forward. We say in the same way that faithful women and men in those 63 years relied on the Holy Spirit, embraced the resurrection, rolled up the sleeve to be the church of work. Here we are right now saying, Jesus, take us into this city, into our lives. We'll follow you every day and everywhere with everyone. So the quicker I get off this stage, the quicker we can get to work. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that right now you are at work. You are alive and well. You will come again. And between now and then, you've given us your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to empower us. May every single one of us choose to step into that truth. For some of us, perhaps for the first time, we explore what it means to become a member of this community. So for some of us, we're going to step right after this service. We're going to go to Discover Bel Air. And we're going to discover what it means to be a part of this vibrant community of faith centered on you, Jesus. That we'll discover what it means to be a member, a participating member of this family. For some of us, it means that we're going to go out into this week into our workplaces, praying that your spirit would guide us. That Jesus, you would be glorified. That your kingdom would be experienced through our lips and our lives. For many of us, we're going to choose after this to spend time in community at meals, off the hill, on the hill, growing together. But God, I pray that it would be your spirit that leads us into that next step, that we would get caught up in your great trajectory of love. It's in your name we pray and we sit together. Amen. Amen.